0: Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every month to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 111. It's tourney time here at Gonzaga and both our men's and women's teams clinched another WCC title this weekend. I'm so excited to head to Vegas on Saturday and watch them battle for another NCAA tourney bid. Now this month's episode is about finding better ways of having your practice time transfer to game success. As a strength coach, I'm always thinking about how the exercises we do in the weight room impact my players' ability to move and handle contact on the court. Just because someone can add more weight onto a barbell doesn't mean that they become a better basketball player. And what today's guest shares is that just because your ball handling or shooting has improved in the drill, it doesn't mean that you'll be able to do it during a game. Tyler LeClaire is a gym owner and player development coach located in Lowell, Massachusetts. Tyler uses a constraints-led approach in small-sided games to get results that transfer for players of all ages. And today, I got to pick his brain on why a games-based approach to training produces superior results and is more fun than doing traditional one-on-O drills. If you're looking for new training ideas that are based in motor learning science, you'll love what Tyler has to share. Here's Tyler LeClaire. Tyler, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. It's tournament time for us. We got both our men's and our women's teams going to Vegas this weekend, so... We're busy down there and I wanted to get you on the show and pick your brains. Hopefully, we'll learn some stuff that we can improve our athletes. So I want to start out just hearing a little bit about your background and how you built your training business.
1: Yeah, so just a quick like background. I started like pretty much every other trainer. I was playing in high school. I was undersized, so I'm only five foot seven. So as a player, I was always dealing with trying to be a little more creative, okay, how do I get to the highest level, even though I don't have that height, even though I don't have, say, natural athleticism. So I was always a super hard worker. And that kind of got me into training, because I was always in the gym training by myself working super hard. And then that got me to being able to play in college. So I went to college for a year. And I started my training business, actually, before I got to college. So I was just training a couple local kids for free or 10 bucks, right? And then I went to that one season, played, and I was just like, you know what, playing kind of feels like more like a job to me, but training feels like more of a passion to me. So I really started diving down that rabbit hole of training, learning as much as I can. And I actually went to college originally to be the strength conditioning coach. And then after that one year, I was like, you know what, I don't really want to play anymore. I think I can do what I want to do, be a trainer, be full-time with this without going to college. So I actually decided to leave school and then just try to pursue being a full-time trainer. So I went all into that. I obviously worked like some part-time jobs, full-time jobs on the side of training, trying to grow my business and just really grinded out for a couple of years, eventually got to a point where I was full-time and then eventually now I got my own gym and obviously full-time trainer and trying to educate as many players as I can, kind of what I learned along the journey and then the things that I learned along the way about what actually works, transfer, all that kind of stuff. So just trying to help as many players as I can now at this point, just with the knowledge that I have. Well, I love your social media because not only are you helping the players that you're individually
0: working with, but you have so many followers that are able to gain insights through all the stuff that you record. How many hours a week are you putting into your social media?
1: I have someone who helps me, so he's he's big on that. But we were actually just filming before this, so we spent maybe an hour just filming, and that'll probably carry us through for the entire week. We'll grab some clips from this podcast. We'll film for a little bit after this, and we'll be good for the whole week, so Back in the day when I was just starting out, I would spend a lot of time just because I had no idea what I was doing. So it's it's kind of just like training, you know. You start training, you have no idea what you're doing. You try to get a little bit better as you go. Let me tweak this. Let me tweak that. And then over time, you know, okay, I hire somebody to help me. They do a good job, and then we just keep growing. But I'd say that an hour to two hours a week is dedicated to it. That's amazing
0: bang for your buck because with the amount of content you put out and how professionally it's done, I would have thought it would been
1: a few hours a day. Yeah. Well, my editor, Alex, who's actually, he's over here. He's a, he puts the most time in. So he's the one grinding, doing all the good work. So, I mean, without him, I wouldn't be doing this. So yeah, I mean, it saves me a lot of time, which is great. It's so nice to be
0: part of a team in all aspects, whether it's in business or social media or strength conditioning. It's so nice to be able to have your strengths and be able to really focus on that and then take someone else whose strength is probably doing the filming and and editing Mm -hmm. and be able to put it right in their hands.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, just like training, like you only get so far by yourself. If you want to be a basketball player, you want to get to the highest level. You need other people around you. You need dietitians. you need strength and conditioning coaches, you need trainers. Same thing for me. I can't do everything all by myself. And if I tried, I wouldn't get as far as I could with getting the help of other people. So. Well, one of the things I want to talk about
0: today was a games-based approach to training basketball players. And we got to chat on the phone
1: last week and I loved your training philosophy. And I was hoping you could just share it with the listeners today. Yeah, so the games-based approach and and small-sided games in general is where I use most of my training is small-sided games and variations of different games, right? So a small-sided game is essentially a smaller version of the actual game. So take a pick and roll, for example, where you're watching a clip, you have two people on this side with the pick and roll, and you have three people on the other side. It's almost like you just take half of the court and you just play off of that. So you're able to get these players in a lot of situations that mimic the game, where it's like, say you were to play five on five. You might only get three, four, five reps in a pick and roll setting, but with small sided games, we can mimic that exact situation and train it 10, 20, 30, 40 reps at a time. So we're getting a lot more reps in that specific situation. We're able to train skills. We're able to train decision-making all within the same exact drill. You know, when we talked this weekend, you talked a lot about constraints
0: led approach. That kind of sounds like when you're doing that small side of game, that's what it is. So can you kind of dig into that piece a little bit for the listeners?
1: Yeah. So- constraints can be used in a lot of different ways. You can use it in individual training, you can use it in in games-based approach. And the big thing with constraints is you're just trying to help athletes discover solutions on their own. I think we can all relate to growing up as a kid, you have parents who tell you things, tell you things, tell you things, but you don't really learn it until you kind of figure it out for yourself, right? So it's kind of the same thing in training where a coach might tell you the same thing, hey, do a low pickup there, do a low pickup there. But until you're in the situation and then you learn through trial and error on yourself, you don't really pick up and learn the lesson so that's a really good piece to the games-based approach but then also the constraints that approach is you can set up the environment where they're learning on their own and you're just guiding them into that solution right so us as coaches my kind of favorite quote in terms of being a good coach is you're just setting up the ideal learning environment so we don't always need to be preaching to them telling them everything they need to do we need to set up the environment through constraints through a games-based approach to help them find these solutions for themselves. And we're just kind of there as a guide as opposed to an explicit teacher.
0: How much of the traditional do a drill and play one-on-one do you do? And I think about the training I did growing up, it was get your shots up, work on your left hand, your right hand, do your ball Mm -hmm. handling, and then the way that I trained was you play one-on-one or you go to the park and you play five-on-five. So tell me a little bit about the strengths or some of the benefits of doing that kind of work versus what you're doing with your
1: small side of games. So when I look at my training, I try to reverse engineer how a lot of elite athletes became elite athletes. What you see with a lot of those high-level players is they spent a lot of time playing pickup. Then we try to kind of mimic what these high-level athletes can do in a one on o setting. So I don't think one on o where you're just repping things out on air, say you're doing stationary ball handling, that can be good. And it's like, if you're by yourself, it's better than nothing. Absolutely. Now there's better ways to do that training by yourself. But when we have groups, when we have a team of people, that's when I think small-sided games is the best bang for your buck. Now we can train specific skills and we can train that decision-making all into one. So I think it's a lot better use of your time. And then again, there always be times as a player where you're by yourself, you're gonna need to train by yourself. It's part of the process. But I think the problem lies when okay, you have a kid who's grinding by himself five days a week. He gets into a practice where there's a group of players and then the coaches start to do the stationary ball handling, the uncontested layups. And that's where I feel like it's, a ver- it's very much a waste of time because again, these kids are practicing all week by themselves. They finally get a chance to play against live defense, to play games and things like that. And the coach is typically sitting there saying, hey, we're going to do pickup at the end. And the kids just want to play, right? And they only get five minutes at the end to play pickup. And it's like, Oftentimes, that's how kids fall out of love for the game because they can't even get to play. So, my big thing that I try to pre- preach is like within these group settings, within these team practices, when we have people, especially at the middle school, high school level, like we got to get kids access to playing against real defense, to doing these small side of games, because especially nowadays, like most kids don't play pickup. So they're not getting that exposure to the defense. They're not getting exposure to making decisions, to playing with other people, how to space and things like that. So that's where I think it's really big. And like I said, like the one on one stuff is always going to be there. So I don't think we need more of it. I'm trying to kind of tail it back a little bit to do a little bit less because I don't think kids are getting enough of the other stuff, enough of the games based approach and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like it's not either or. You want to be able to do both. This just wins the optimal time. When you're by yourself and you don't have access to a teammate to be able to play defense, that's a great time to work on your individual ball handling or your shooting, your one-on-one finishing. But if you have access to a couple of players, let's be efficient and then use them to be able to improve your game. Exactly.
1: Too much of anything is never good, right? Too much one-on-one training is not going to really get you anymore. Only small-sided games might not be the best approach. So it's always about a mix, the optimal mix. And it's never about which one's better because they both have their purpose. But it's just about which one has its purpose at the right time. Tell me what self-organization means to you. So self-organization is essentially just the body figuring out how to solve that solution by itself. So like if I was to give you a constraint where it's like, okay, I need you to get from point A to point B. But there's no way that you can get there. Maybe you take a loop approach. Maybe you go this way, right? But if I put a constraint where it said, basically gave you a road and I said, you need to go from point A to point B, you're going to self-organize to just go in a straight line. So it's kind of just like the constraints set a parameter for the possible solutions. So if I said, hey, I want you to say you take a kid who's never even seen basketball in their life before. They've never seen someone shoot. And I say, hey, I need you to throw this ball into the hoop. They might throw it like a baseball. They might throw it underhand. They might throw it over their head. You have no idea how they're going to do it. But then, if you say, Hey, I need you to put your hand under the ball and push it up to the rim, they're going to self organize to kind of make it look like a jump shot, right? Because you constrain the possible solutions. Now, if you just said put the ball on the rim, again, like they might go with a baseball throw. So we're limiting the possible solutions. And then that's how we help them find what's most optimal.
0: Yeah, I love when you're talking about the constraints led approach or even the small side of games to allow athletes to self organize because. I'm thinking about my little fourth grade son as you go through so much of it is I am telling him, hey, this is how you do it. This is how you do the layup. It's dribble, pick up the ball, left, right, and then finish with your right hand. And I'm really orchestrating everything so he can kind of have the right form. But we know in the game of basketball that once you know the form and you know the basics, you can leave the basics. And Mm -hmm. so being able to Have an environment where you can really construct stuff and show them things, but then also create another environment where they could self-discover and figure out maybe it's more beneficial to jump off my left foot instead of my right foot in this situation.
1: Exactly. So that's like another thing that I preach is I think a lot of coaches get in the mindset of like, this is right, this is wrong. So at the young ages, you always hear, okay, you have to jump off this foot. But then they get such in a habit of jumping off that foot when you tell them, hey, you can jump off either foot. It's all about the right time. They can't do it anymore because you pigeonhole them into this is right and this is wrong. And then to kind of your other point is like the big part about self-discovery is every athlete's a little bit different. Like Luca and John Moran are two totally different players. They're going to lean towards certain movement patterns or solutions based on their body type, how fast they are, how high they can jump. So it's like if you try to tell them this is right, this is wrong. For John ja Morant, something might be right, but for Luca, it'll be quote unquote wrong. You know what I mean? So it's always about what's better or what's most optimal for the person that's in front of you. And everyone's going to be a little different. So that's why it's just so tough to kind of create these rules or create this right or wrong for every player, because again, it's always a little bit different. So when you have
0: players come in and work out with you, let's just go through maybe a traditional skills training session. How long are your sessions? what would you do if you had four players? How would you balance out that one-on-one work with one-on-one with
1: two-on-two? So to take you through like a typical session, right? I usually like to start with something fun. I like to start with just a basic warm-up. So I might do soccer. I might play wall ball. We might play dribble tag. So just something to fun just to kind of get the sweat going. Now, from there, I'll get into some simple one-on-one finishing situations for example so hip to hip let's drive to the rim catch take the ball drive downhill you got a contested finish so everything's going to be with at least one defender so we might do that for say 20 minutes and then if i feel like these kids are really struggling with a certain concept maybe it's finishing off a certain footwork or maybe it's working on their floater we might get into 10 15 minutes of just kind of repping that out maybe there's no defense maybe there's dummy defense so we go fun game we do small sided games games based approach whatever you want to call it 15 minutes of drill and then we're going to go back to doing more small sided games so the big thing with doing the drill in the middle is it gives it context so a lot of times okay we're working on a certain footwork but the kid has no idea when do i do this so the thing that i like to do is within that first 20 minute block really overemphasize the importance of what i'm going to teach them so it's like all right we need to work on these quick finishes i'm going to purposely put them in situations where they're getting their shit punched. And then they realize, oh, I need a I need a way to solve this problem. And then in the middle, I'm giving them the, the solution to that problem. They're like, okay, this is when I'm going to use it. So now they know what to do, but they also know when to do it. And then I'm going to put them back in the same situation or similar situations, and then they're going to start trying that finish that we just worked on. So it's a way to give them context. It's a way to work on decision-making, and it's also a way to work on specific skills and then work on translating it back into a real game-like setting
0: wow, that's such a cool way of doing it. You know, I've always done a skill, a drill in a game. And so mm-hmm. I might work on the skill of a left-hand layup. Then we might do some kind of drill, you know, where you have to do a move into the layup. And then I would do the game, which would be some kind of finish thing one-on-one. But I didn't have the need for it necessarily. Mm-hmm. While they're doing the skill or doing the drill, they might not actually see, like, why would I need to
1: be able to do this move? And so yeah. I love it. And they doing might not be as motivated words. either. They might be like, oh, why are we doing this? Just kind of go through the motions versus when you're doing that drill or that skill, they know, okay, I need to be able to do this. So they're going to put a little more focus, a little more effort into figuring out and actually executing when it's just like on air. Because typically kids just kind of go through the motions. Oh, I want to play. They don't see the importance of what you're teaching them. But when you put them in those situations and they fail 10 times over and over and over again, there's importance for what you're teaching them. They focus a little bit more, have a little more attention, they're more desired to learn that skill that you're teaching them. Yeah, tell
0: me about the buy-in that comes in with the games-led approach versus traditional skill training.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think the biggest thing is it's just more fun. Like, I think we can all agree that playing is more fun than training. But the best part about the games-based approach and small-sided games, we can combine the two. Where it's training, they don't really feel like it's training, but it's training. Because us as the coach, again, we're trying to build the ideal learning environment. The ideal learning environment is one that they don't even realize is one that they're learning. They just feel like they're playing games, but you're constructing the environment in a way where there's certain constraints, there's certain rules. So they're learning certain things without them even really knowing they're learning it. So the buy in is absolutely huge. I think it's more sustainable because you see, most kids are like, oh, it's the grind, it's the grind, it's the grind. But like when it seems more fun, they're going to show up every day. Right. And if you get kids showing up every day, they're inherently just going to get better. Like if Johnny shows up six days out of the week and Jimmy only shows up three, who's going to get better, right? The guy who shows up six. So if we're doing a small side of game, games-based approach, and these kids are showing up more because it's fun, just right off the just off of that alone, the kids are going to get better. And another thing that I do that I think gets a lot of buy-in is we do something called win the day. So every drill is, pretty much every drill is competitive, except for maybe like the middle part where we just rep stuff out. And then every drill, there's a winner. So you you win the drill, you get a point. Whoever wins the most points on the day wins the day. So we have a winner on the day. And then at the end of the month, we tally up who won the most days. That person won the month. We have a little wall that people get to sign. So that's their like pride and joy. They walk in the gym. Hey, that's my name on the wall. Like, and they're just more motivated to show up more consistently. And they're more excited because they want to try to win. They're competitive the whole time. They're going at each other. And I think that just overall creates a lot of buy in and it creates a lot of hard work. It creates a lot of focus. And kids are just, more bought in. Can you do this approach in a team setting?
0: This works really well small group training. What what does it look like if you have 12-15 players on a team? Can you still create a games led approach to the
1: majority of practice? Definitely. I think um it's a perfect way to kind of run certain sets that you may have, certain actions that you have and you just turn it into 3 on 3. So instead of doing things 5 on 5, do it 3 on 3. You want to train shooting, do more contested shooting. If you want to do skill work, there's plenty of things you can do with one-on-one stuff, right? If you have 12 guys, you have four groups of three. So you can go three-on-three on, three on one hoop, three-on-three on, three on the other hoop, and everyone's doing something at all times, right? And that's another big thing is because of the games-based approach, someone's always playing defense. So we're not just getting better at offense, we're also getting better at defense. So you can teach defensive principles, you can teach offensive principles, you can teach actions, sets, all of these different things. You can still have your coaching methodology and teach it through these small-sided games while everyone's getting better at the same time. So not that you do it necessarily your entire practice for the team setting, because obviously you have plays you need to run, different things. But I think coaches can implement it a lot more often than they do. And I think it can be very beneficial if they did.
0: Well, usually everything comes back to my kids. And so I'm thinking mm-hmm. about my fourth grader and what a great way to make practice fun and to create that competitive environment is to have win the day or win the week or win the month, because most of what I'm doing, my fourth graders is skill training. I mean, Mm -hmm. they really have to be able to dribble, shoot, pass. And so to give them a lot of reps and small sided games is going to be beneficial. And we don't really work on our offense much because I think we only have an hour or hour and a half. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure we're spending the most amount of time actually improving their skills. So it seems like that could be a great thing to do
1: for younger players. 100%. It's super fun. Like you said, especially at that age, you want to focus most of your time on getting the kids better. Because most coaches, they're worried about winning. They're putting in plays for fourth graders, and it just makes no sense. Like, you don't need to win a fourth grade championship. Your kid's not getting recruited in fourth grade. So like you were saying, like, it's all about just helping the kids get better. And I think small-sided games is a great way. It's going to get them looking forward to practice, showing up more, being more excited, and it's a great way to build skills all at the same time. And the decision-making, spacing, all of that stuff that's really important as they get a little older.
0: What are some of the misconceptions that you've heard, whether it's from clients or from parents that are looking for a certain type of training that might have the
1: wrong idea of what you do. So, I'd say the the biggest one is that people separate the, the small-sided games and then skill training and they think it's two different things. But they're one and the same because say you want to work on a skill, eventually you have to work on doing it with defense. But why don't we just do it all at the same time? And I think the reason why most people don't is because small-sided games can get ugly. So the big thing with the games-based approach is you have less immediate improvement. So if I tell a kid, hey, I want you to work on this specific footwork, no defense, no pressure, nothing, they're going to be able to pick it up quicker, right? So it seems like we're improving, but small-sided games, it might take a week or two weeks for them to do it. So it seems like, okay, option A, where I just taught them how to do it on air versus option B, they did it way faster in this other situation where I was just telling them what to do. But when it comes to transfer doing it in a small sided games environment is going to actually transfer quicker. And the whole goal is not to get better in practice it's to get better in the games. So coaches immediately assume okay I can te- teach them how to do it they're going to get better in practice that means I'm doing my job. But at the end of the day our whole goal as trainers is to get them better in games. So a small sided games is going to help it transfer quicker, help them have better performance in games, that's what we should be doing. So I think that's kind of one of the main misconceptions is We can't do skill training within small sided games, which we absolutely can. We just organize the environment to help them work on a certain skill that we want. Boom, they do it, they learn it in the games, they learn it in a representative environment, it's gonna transfer over quicker. But again, it's just uglier, kids mess up more, so it feels like they're not improving as much, but in reality, the whole goal is transfer and it transfers much quicker than just your typical on-air reps. In my
0: space, the king is how do you get what you do in the weight room to transfer on the court? And sometimes we can get fooled because if you measure things in the weight room, you'll see improvement. And so, you might think, oh, they're getting better. But taking your bench press from 300 to 400 or 400 to 500, whatever that is, at some point, it's not only not getting them better, it might be getting them worse. Yep. And so, I could see the correlation between that and basketball, which is there might be a lot of false excitement about improving in a drill one-on-one on knowing that now I can measure this in the drill. Look, I can make this many more shots. But
1: it's not going to transfer on to actually making them a better basketball player. Exactly. There's there's a big difference between getting better at a drill and getting better for a game. If you have the same kid do the same drill every single day, they're going to inherently get better at the drill. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get better in games. And we always want to track things and measure things based on if they're getting better in games, not necessarily in practice.
0: All right, so let's talk specifically about finishing. This is an area that I just feel is so important. My ninth grade son, he's a really nice shooter he needs to improve his ability to finish around the basket. And so, of course, we do a lot of the traditional mic and drills or little baby hooks or floaters, mm-hmm. one-on-O. Tell me some ways that we can make that into a small side of game that's going to improve his finishing.
1: A couple that I can give you is one of them that I really like is we call it pivot one-on-ones. So we're going to start them basically right in the center of the paint. So it'll be a one-on-one situation, live defense, defense is trying to block the shot. So you have them start with like their left foot as their pivot foot. And they're maybe their chest is facing towards the sideline. And then whenever you say go, they can just pivot and then they have to try to finish. So what you're going to see is obviously they're reacting to the defense. They're working on their pivots. But then also you're going to get a lot more game specific finishes because say they pivot and he has to work on finishing like this or he has to really work on extending. If he doesn't extend, he's going to get blocked. So we're getting that feedback immediately from the defense of what works and what doesn't. They're also going to start to see different opportunities. And then they're also working kind of on that decision making in that very specific situation, right? He comes to a pivot in the paint. It's essentially the same situation. Okay, I got a pivot here. I need to put it up with my left hand. That's what's going to work. And then he misses it because it's a tough finish, but he's very okay. He's starting to learn. He's trying different things. And then the big thing with that is you're getting what we call variable practice. So not every finish is the exact same back to back to back. So everyone's just a little bit different. He's trying different things. I think that's a really good, very simple kind of warm-up drill. Then from there, you can maybe back it up to the elbow, where it's one guy's on one elbow, one guy's on the next. He passes it to the other guy. It's one dribble downhill finish. Maybe you get a shot fake. Maybe you go inside hand. Maybe you go kind of a floater. Maybe you go reverse layup, right? So he's kind of making some decisions, but he also has that pressure of, I got to go quick. I got to use different footwork, all depending on what the defense does. From there, you can back it up even more. You can go hip to hip from the three-point line. So the guy's just starting on a dribble. Defense is on their hip. Whenever they start to drive, that's when it's live. Now we're working on bumps. You're working on trying to cut in front. If he cuts you off, change the direction. And then again, you're working on finishing with real defense. If you try finish, you get blocked. That doesn't work. You've made the wrong decision. Try something else. So again, it's just kind of just learning through trial and error, learning while at the same time working on your decision making. So those are just like three. Kind of simple ones that I like to do.
0: I love that progression. And then based off of what you saw the athlete do, the decisions they made, what would that look like? And now to go into a traditional one, on O drill
1: that you might work on. Yep. So kind of just base it all off what you're seeing. So if you're saying he's having a really tough time with the inside hand finish, okay, maybe we rep that out a little more. Maybe he's having trouble or he's not seeing opportunities to go off of his left foot instead of his right or he could have shot fake there, or he could have worked on a two foot finish. So, kind of whatever you're seeing that they're lacking or not doing a good job of, that's when you can kind of get more specific within that kind of one on O training where it's just repping certain things out.
0: What are some of the other areas that you use small sided games for? I mean, in my mind, the, the biggest thing that came through with my son is finishing. What are some of the other skills that you really feel lend itself to
1: be improved by small sided games? I think we can do a lot of like strategy stuff. So, You can teach a lot of IQ stuff out of small-sided games. You can do even like late game situations, late half situations. So you can have like a one minute on the clock, three on three, going out of certain situations. And then I like just do a lot of stuff with decision-making. So say we're working on shooting, you throw in a little bit of a decision where one that I really like to do that I did, I think first did it like a year and a half ago or two years is we'll start one guy in the block, one guy in the corner, one guy in the wing, defense throws it to one of the two and then they have to make decisions. Does he close out on me? I shoot it. If not, I want to draw him, kick to the other guy. And then you can throw in a dribble. So it's like you're working on spacing out the defense. So he's, clo- he's closing out, take a dribble away from the defense. If he stays with you, you got to make a pass. So you can work on so many different things. You Contested shooting, finishing, decision-making, pick and rolls, handoffs, so it's like really whatever you feel like you these players need, but you can really work on everything, spacing, decision-making, skills, strategy, late game situations, all that kind of stuff. How do you score stuff?
0: I just love that idea of winning the day or winning the month. And it's pretty easy to see how you might score a one on O with no dribble in the side of the paint. You only could pivot, you know, if you're playing a game to five or if you're playing whatever the game is to, if you win, you mm-hmm. get a point.
1: How would you score some of the other drills? So one thing that I really like to do, which is kind of a constraint, but not really like say with your youngest son or your other son, right? You want them to work on a certain finish or a certain left hand finish, maybe, or a pull-up jump shot where you're putting them in certain situations, whatever it is you're working on, you can give them extra points to entice them to do what you're trying to get them to do. So say your kid cannot finish with his left hand. He's afraid to try what's going to score with his left hand. You say, hey, everything's one point, but if you score with your left, I'll give you three points. So now they're searching for that left-hand finish because before, if it's just a straight one-to-one where everything's one point, they're not going to try it because they're going to go to what's comfortable. So you're going to reward them for getting outside of that comfort zone, trying to finish with the left, even though they're not typically comfortable doing that. So they're going to search for that opportunity. So that's a way that you can kind of mess with the scoring structure a little bit, depending on what you're trying, them to, do, trying to get them to do. Kind of back to the finishing example where maybe you want to get them to work on using their shot fake. Where it's like, if you get the defender off the ground, you get two points. So now they're trying to use the shot fake. Now they're using the pivot. So you can really mess with the scoring structure depending on what you want them to work on. You can keep everything one point. You can go three points for threes, two points for twos, whatever you want. But the point structure is a really good way to kind of entice players or even get them away from doing negative things. Like if they have a bad habit where they always shot fake, you say if you shot fake, negative one. So that's just kind of a good way you can kind of mess with the scoring structure. Ah,
0: so fun. My mind is just racing, thinking about all the ways I can apply this to my little kids. So tell me about when you're playing two on two, when the offense scores, do both players on the offensive team get a point or is that just all depends on how you set
1: up the drill? Yeah, if we're doing two on two, we'll typically give both of them a point. So it's just kind of team games as opposed to just one on one. That way it's just obviously enticing them to work together as a team. And then do you just tally your points throughout the whole
0: practice? So if I got seven points in the one-on-one in the post drill, and then we played two-on-two and my team scored five times, now I have 12 points. Is that how you kind of tally it
1: throughout the, the course of the practice? Yeah, so I'll do it um, per drill. So say you had you were the first person to get to seven for the drill, so you'd have one point on the day. So it's whoever has the most wins. So it's like each drill, is it's one game where it's, okay, you have one win and I have a whiteboard, so we'll tally it up. Because then obviously kids like to cheat in terms of scoring. They'll say, I have three wins when you have two. So um, yeah, just each drill is its own individual win. If you win that drill, you get one point. Then we move on, score resets. And then whoever wins that one gets a point.
0: So cool. What's another small-sided game that you've done? I, I love the one where you have decision-making. You have the player in the corner and one on the wing. What are some other drills that coaches can implement into their practice?
1: One that's a very easy one, just because I think a lot of kids struggle with this, is say two-on-one transition, so you have two kids starting at half court on both sides of, say, the circle, the half court, and then you have one defender standing in the middle, and then whenever they go, offense goes, it's just a lot. So you're kind of working on the two-on-one, and then you're also on defense working on trying to mess with the defense, get them to make a bad pass, kind of try to mess them up at the rim so they miss the layup, because you see a lot of kids, they're in transition, so two-on-one, they make a bad pass, or they just don't finish the layup. So that's a really easy situation to just mimic get them a lot of reps in that situation. They start to figure out what works, what doesn't. And then you can even extend it from there where it's a three on two, as opposed to a two on one. Another one I like to do is say three on two pick and roll. So you're working on trying to create an advantage and then utilize the space that you have. Because you have that advantage, you want to make sure that people are making the right decisions where you're trying to space out the pick and roll, hit the lift guy, and then kind of just play off of that. So really just... It's kind of the same as the game, like whatever situation you see a lot in the game, let's try to mimic it. And then let's try to find ways to add constraints to work on specific skills that they need to, to entice them to make good decisions, to entice them to share the ball. Really, the options are endless. If
0: we're looking at a high school player that's going to be training with you a few times a week, what's the ratio between working out on their own working on their jump shot, working on their ball handling, whatever that would be, and then also coming to you to work on the small side of games. Is it kind of a one-to-one? Have you found that it's more beneficial to spend more time outside of organized practice with you by themselves?
1: Yeah, so it all depends on the player. So to give you kind of context, I would group people into two categories. You have the game player, you have the practice player. So you have the kid who has all the skills in practice, but it just doesn't transfer to a game. And on the flip side of that, you have it the really raw player who doesn't really have the technical skills, but just like fantastic in a game. So it's like with that player, it's going to be more one-on-one stuff where we're trying to add certain skills, techniques to the game because that's what's going to help them get to the next level. Versus the practice player, he just doesn't have enough decision-making training yet for those skills to transfer. So for each of those players, doing one thing a little bit more is going to get them more results than the other player. So it's no like, one size fits all, it just all depends who's on front in front of me. Typically, what you see is a lot of practice players, at least the kids that I train, because they're just so skilled. They work out by themselves all the time, but especially kind of the areas that most of those kids live in, they just don't have access to pickup. So for them, more small-sided games is going to benefit them versus some of the other kids where maybe they grew up in a different area and all they did was play pickup. They never really had a formal trainer. They just love hoop. So they just built up a resiliency and they just built up, a great feel for the game like they know when to pass the ball they know when to cut they know when to shoot when not to so for them it's just about adding skills like for a lot of the kids it might just be completely fixing their shot adding a couple footworks and then all of a sudden boom they just start using it in the game and their performance skyrockets versus the other person it's just decision making decision making decision making and then their game skyrockets. so it's all about just taking the player that's in front of you meeting them where they're at and giving them what they need
0: i love how individualized that is and i think when you do that the transfer is going to happen. The The fun is going to happen because they're going to see themselves actually getting better at what they need to do. For the kid that spend countless hours doing drills, more drills is not going to
1: transfer for them. Exactly.
0: What did I miss? What other thoughts on games-based
1: approach or small-sided games would our listeners really benefit from hearing? Just one thing that came to the top of my mind, just because I was talking about it yesterday with somebody, is um, a lot of people might see small-sided games, games-based approach and think, there's a higher risk of getting hurt. So I think this is a very interesting topic that I think you'll relate to well is like, if we just do on air training, so just one on O just repping things out by yourself, the chances of you getting hurt in a game are probably higher, because you're not training those actual forces, the things that are going to happen in a game. So people may say, okay, small sided games, there's a high risk of getting hurt, because you're playing against defense, you might step on an ankle, something might happen. But I would argue that there's actually a higher chance of getting injured if you just go from one on O, just to playing in games. So I think small-sided games gives players the proper forces, the proper change of direction, the proper things that are going to prepare them for the actual game and almost decrease their chance of getting hurt. So I think that's just an interesting point where, again, people are going to say, oh, you're playing against defense, you might get hurt, I wouldn't do it. But I would argue that the opposite is actually true, where if you just do one on no training, you step into a game, you're probably going to get hurt at a lot higher rate than if you're doing small-sided games.
0: I would totally agree with that too and strength conditioning we see it so often where hey if you're going to squat or if you're going to lunge everything has to be perfectly aligned because we don't want to get you hurt and Mm -hmm. I would say well look at the demands of basketball you know I'm not going to be able just to squat in this cylinder straight up and down without any movement side to side and so if my job is really to prepare them for the demands of the game of basketball I have to do things that's reaction in the weight room or where there's some kind of outside force that might have to push them. Now, of course, we have to be safe while we're doing it. We can't be uh, the risk versus reward, but we want them lunging and moving in all different directions at all different speeds because that's what they're going to have to do on the basketball court. And So the idea that they're going to get hurt by playing one-on-one, well, one-on-one is a lot safer than nine other guys on the court
1: Mm -hmm. uh, that
0: are going to be pushing you and you might be landing on someone else's foot. So I would would totally agree with your philosophy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. I'm sure the listeners are really excited about what they heard. How can they find out more about what you're doing?
1: Uh, So you can find me on Instagram at TJL Training. And then I also have my website, tjltraining.com. My email phone number should be on there. So if anyone has any more questions, feel free to reach out to me there or DM me on Instagram. We're posting tons of content. Also on YouTube at TJL Training. So always putting out tons of educational content. So if people want to see more about this or learn more about it, you can find it there. Or just
0: come to my fourth-grade practice tonight. I'm going to try out some of these drills. Exactly. There you go. love it. Now, that's a wrap on Episode 111. And I hope you join me next month where I get to interview one of the greatest college basketball players in the game, Gonzaga's Drew Timmy. He's known for his impeccable footwork down low, and I'm going to pick his brain on how today's generation can take their game to the next level by revisiting the basics. And to all of you who are committed will earn your ass.